Okay. So I don't, maybe, maybe I'll just come at it like this and just and talk for a little bit about what I, I think is the issue behind several of those things, about how we, how we communicate and think about this, this issue, and not just the issue, but the people behind the issue, um, with a mixture of clarity and love and compassion and acceptance, and actually folding in an ability to speak into the cultural context without feeling like we've got to be so... Uh, so careful not to offend and so careful to communicate that we love everybody that we can't actually say what we believe at all because we're worried people will misconstrue it. Um, and there's a bit of context behind that, that comment, which will come clear in a minute. I think there's a... Let's, say, let's track four different ways of engaging with the, the issue. Right? Start with the issue and the way that your church presents itself on this subject and acknowledging that, of course, we're always talking about people... Um, that I could see in, um, even in churches in our own, in the wider New Frontiers family, I, I could see all of these being represented. Um, and I think some of them have got, they've all got strengths, but I think there's some weaknesses in there sometimes as well. Approach number one is really, the way we're going to deal with it is silence. We're not going to talk about it. Because if we do, we will be misconstrued and misquoted and Held, you know, hauled in front of you know the media will get hold of it. We will be pilloried. This will become the issue about which we define ourselves. And we went there on complementarianism. We don't want to do it again because everybody then just thinks that's the oh you're the people who don't like gays and all that stuff. And so we basically will we won't say anything. My lips are sealed. You know that silence approach, which I think has been used by a lot of churches worldwide. And I was at a I was really surprised actually, but I was at a forum on sexuality at, hosted at the. Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, which used to be the Zacharias Trust thing. So Michael Ramsden and all of those guys were hosting something. And there were lots of UK leaders there. And I asked at the end of the day, I asked Ed Shaw, who's written a great book on this subject called The Plausibility Problem. And I said, how, how are churches generally handling this? Are they saying too much, saying too little? Where's the temperature? And he said, you, gotta, you would be staggered. He said, no one's saying anything about it except New Frontiers in the UK, pretty much. He said, there is, there is no, vo- people are so worried about getting it wrong, no one's saying anything. You guys, what you did at New Day, and the way you're writing about it, is almost unheard of. Like, and I was really shocked, this was only two months ago, because I thought the silence thing was a bit of a fringe position. But as I was sitting in discussion groups with vicars and people all over, they were just saying, if I talk about this without knowing a bit like what I just said about the trans issue. If I talk about this now, I will get pegged with it and it'll be the only thing people know about me and I don't want to go there. And I think because everyone's read the Gospels, Jesus, Pharisees, you don't want to be the Pharisee. Maybe I will become the Pharisee if I say this is sin. Unless I'm really, really good at it, I'm not going to say anything. And that's that approach, which is, I think, understandable, I think is completely unacceptable pastorally, even if you leave the missional aspect out of it, which I don't think you can. And obviously, the reason is because the more, that, that's a bit like saying that the more difficult an issue is for your people to understand, the less you will tell them about it. Which I just think is pastoral madness. I just don't understand how you disciple people that way. See, the more pressing this is for you, the less I will help you deal with it. And actually, if nothing else, I, this is probably a theology of eldership here. It's like the elder's job is to be the person who's taking the, the shots on behalf of the sheep. And if the sheep are saying, this is what our church believe, great. They're hiding behind you. That's what sheep do. They should be. Um, now, obviously, that won't exonerate them from any responsibility for what you believe, and you've got to be wise, but silence is a way of saying, I don't want people to be yelling at me about it. I think there's a place for that's what elders are supposed to do. I'm the one who gets yelled at. and that's so, that you're, so I think there's that aspect, um, and I think missionally, you've also got a huge problem, because in the end, the culture knows. So you duck it, you don't say anything, but they know. 
You know, they, they know you believe. You soon say, believe the Bible. Oh, so what do you believe about this? Well, it's very... And you do your best attempt to fudge it. You will, the truth will out. And you might as well come out and say, well, I've got a positive vision for this rather than, yes, I'm slightly awkwardly forced to admit that this is what I believe. So I think there's the silence option, but I don't think that's an option. There's the apology approach, which is better because it's saying something, um, but I think there's a risk there. It's effectively, the only thing you want to communicate is, I'm so sorry for how you have been hurt. Which, by the way, when I preach on this, I think probably maybe every time I've preached on this subject in a public, not in a context like this, but in a public context, unbelievers here, going online or whatever, I have said to people who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, within the first few minutes, I'm sure you, many of your experiences will be like this, and I'm so sorry that's been true from people who love Jesus, and here's how it affected me, and here's how it's affected my friends, and I know that what, a bit of what it's like, and I'm sorry. So I do that, right? I'm not disparaging at all the, the need to communicate, we love you and we understand, to people I mean, we had Preston Sprinkle with us. Some of you will know him this last weekend. He was quoting a survey that 80, in the States, 83% of LGBT people grew up in the church. In of 2,000 people, Andrew Marin surveyed, and his biggest piece of research done on it. So he's saying, and, and they almost all left because they didn't feel like people cared about them. And so, um, and so I think there is a, that's a big issue. So we've got to communicate apology as part of, I think, that is part of the story. But I think, I mean, a phrase I read Matt use, you might have got it from someone else. Have we not reached? It was all my own. He was eager to insist that he, he gets footnoted for this. He said, mate, have we not reached a point where we, where, have we not reached peak apology now? Which, and Matt always really helps, writing with Matt really helps me because I just often think, yeah, that's, there is a, there is a risk that in overcorrecting, there is a sense of the only message I give is I'm, I'm really sorry. And because I'm sorry, I don't want to tell you what I think is true. And so there is a risk of doing that, which is quite an appealing option because people will say, wow, that's very humble. And I'm sure that there's a truth behind that somewhere, but we don't need to talk about it now. But it has many of the problems of the silence approach, um, which is really that your people still don't quite know how to do it. And then your people start doing it. And somebody says to them, so what do you think about gay marriage? You just say, I'm just so sorry that you've been so hurt by the church. You think, That's, that might not be the question. It often isn't, actually. A lot of Christians, in, at least in the UK, a lot of unbelievers in the UK, are like, we don't really care what the church says. We're certain it's fine. So we think you're stuck in the dark ages about it. Bully for you. But that's not actually my presenting issue here. I'm just curious what you think about it. Are you a bigot or not? And at that point, to say, well, I apologize, I apologize, is a little bit really conceding the ground. It's just saying... Yeah, you're right, I am bigoted, and so are all the people I know, and we're really sorry about that. I think, well, we need, to, we need to do more than that, although we don't need to do less. So there is silence, and then there's, I think, apology. The next one, which is much more popular, but again has some of the same difficulties, is that of dialogue, where dialogue becomes the shibboleth. So this is, we are, let's talk about it. Yeah, so we're, we're not necessarily just saying nothing, or I'm sorry, but we're saying let's talk. Let's hear what it's like to be you. Again, very valuable thing to do. So I started this, started this session. What do you want to talk about? It's a good thing to do, right, as we're talking. But again, it's at risk of falling foul, of falling prey to a very um, contemporary, very sort of isolated contemporary impulse to say, really, we've just got two opinions here and let's talk, let's share and let's talk. And the sense that, God might have something to say that isn't really about what I believe, but it's just because God's spoken. I'm talking here as assuming we're talking to people who are 
approaching Christianity or within the church. Dialogue alone doesn't, doesn't do it. And actually, you put two people, this is often what people want, want, want us to do, put this view and that view next to each other. And then you, the great audience, the judges, can decide. They say, well, that's just not the right way of thinking about the relationship between human wisdom and the word of God at all. Now, there's a huge place for it, right? Lots and lots of conversations. Lots of, and of course, you're talking to an unbeliever. That's, of course, where you start. A mixture of silence, apology, and dialogue. But when that becomes the framework for the whole church's position, you've still got a big problem. Because you're modelling two things. You're modelling a bad way of handling this particular issue because you've got to start with the foundation. You know, Anybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice stands on solid rock. You hear them and you don't put them into practice, your house on sand. That's always where we start. What's, what's Jesus said and where are we? Are we going to stand on it or not? So you've got that problem in terms of this specific issue. But you've also got a wider hermeneutical problem, which is you're saying when things get sticky, we stand back and say, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And then that's actually almost a bigger problem because that will just, that's, that's what's next. And then the next issue, then the next issue. So you say, you know, let's have dialogue on this. And you say, well, what else are you going to have dialogue on? So I think there's a place sometimes for saying, no, I, I want to, there is dialogue, but there is also monologue. Right? So none of those three things are wrong. But if they become the, the primary way in which your church or your ministry is identified on this issue, I think you won't be helped. And the fourth way, which is the one I think we, we have to do, is proclamation. We have to do it with the others. But I think the leading edge of what we're doing is proclamation, which is really, it is written, isn't it? I think and I think we're doing that mindful of the benefits of the other three, but saying, ultimately, I come as an emissary of God. I come to speak what God says. And the way we do that, of course, is not just pro- proclamation on the topic, the texts that talk about homosexuality. I trust probably no one in this room is at risk of over- falling into that ditch. And it sounded from my conversation with Ed Shaw like no one in the UK is in, in danger of that there may be there's the Westburg Baptist people with their you know God hates fags banners but I don't think I think that's a loony fringe cult thing we don't I don't think the mainstream church is at risk too much of this um, but, but proclamation doesn't mean proclamation of texts about sexuality proclamation means continually proclaiming the whole counsel of God and when you do that, of course, in a year, you're spending an awful lot of time talking about the fact that God loves sinners and an awful lot of time talking about the fact that God created everything and is in charge and an awful lot of time talking about the fact that there's grace and holiness and, and sometimes you touch on issues of sex and sexuality or idolatry or greed or whatever. And if that's, if that's the approach and we're continually doing that and have a balanced proclamation of the whole counsel of God, transformation, you know, this is what the Christian life is. You come as you are. You don't stay as you are. You become, we're here. The, in the new creation, we'll be there. And there's a lot of hard work to do between now and then, but the Spirit's doing it with us and through us. So we're going to change. That's always true. And then you're continually mentioning this as one of many examples of that process happening. And saying, oh, so for some of us, this is how that plays out. For others of us, it's greed. For others, and then you say, actually, I don't have to preach on sexuality very much at all. I'm probably referring to it because of its precedence in our day. I'm probably referring to it quite regularly. And I do. Just a good example of lots and lots of issues in which the gospel and the culture collide. But I've, only, I've probably, in, at King's, I've preached two messages on it in 12 years. I preached one when we were preaching through 1 Corinthians, um, in which it explicitly came up. And that was in 2006 or seven. And then I preached one in an apologetic series we did um, three years ago, and then Preston actually spoke on it this last weekend, as it happens. So we've, that's the third message. But he wasn't mainly talking about, he was talking about our posture towards the gay community rather than sexuality as an issue. So we, 
we are, it's not like a huge issue for me or for us, but it's such an excellent way of exploring or a good illustration of the relationship between God-loving people, us being sinners, us needing to repent, God giving us power to change, us giving people grace while they do change, us saying sometimes, we don't know how this is going to play out in your life, but that is just a wonderful... If you're doing proclamation well, you're not just speaking on this issue, of course, at all. And what that means, if you've got silence, apology, dialogue, all of which are valid, and, but primarily proclamation as a means of ministry, I think you have then got the requirement to speak with different voices on this topic, I think. I think that's what contextualization is. Right? I think you are required to speak. So there was this debate, in the, in a, even in our circles in the UK, over the last few years, is this the, the sort of issue about which we need to speak with one voice? And I personally believe, and this is not a biblical thing, but I, I think that's impossible on this issue. I can't only speak with one voice because if I'm talking to, as I have done and was, to a guy who's new to the, who's new to the, never been in the church before, he's in a gay relationship with a guy, part of the gay scene in the town, he wants to, he wants to know what I think. My response to him would be fundamentally inappropriate if it was the same as the response that I would give to somebody who had been in the church 11 years and said he wanted to leave his wife and start going, going off with a guy. What do you think? It would just be profoundly wrong for me to use either of the voices I'm using to the other one. One of them is, don't you have any fear of God? What are you thinking? And I've, I actually haven't had that example. I've had the example with somebody who was in sexual immorality and was trying to convince me the Bible didn't say there was anything wrong with it. But you know, that is, we read you the riot act. That is, no way. But the guy who's just come in and has not even been to the church yet, that's a totally different voice. And I think you broaden it out. You say, I've got to speak with different voices on this. And so I'd give you a few examples of this. Some of you will know some of these examples in, in my life. Some of you don't, never heard of me before, but some of you have, might know I've done some of these things. So there are places for gentle dialogue. My, de- my debate was with Rob Bell, if you know Rob Bell, was like that. It was just, this is a place for gentle dialogue because <laughs> he, he went over like a house of cards. Like I just said, why do you believe that? And he didn't know. And so 20 minutes in, you're just like, wow, this is, this is farcical. I don't have to push at all, actually, because there's just nothing here. So sometimes you can do that. You can just say, this is very gentle, just probing questions. Okay, what do you think? What do you think? I never thought anyone was going to ask me that question. I don't know. And you think, okay, so gentle dialogue in that setting with another Christian, that can be, that's a good voice to have. And I then quickly then got lots of people going, oh, he's the guy who speaks on issues of sexuality really nicely. I was like, well, with him I do because I didn't need to do anything else. But I then had another debate a year later with Steve Chalk and then another debate a year later with Brian McLaren and they're different guys. So Brian is very gentle but also holds to his own. It holds his line pretty clearly. Steve is pretty fierce and on the front foot and he's just... It's answer a fool according to his folly, isn't it? You've got to, I've got to pitch what I'm saying according to the level at which it's being said. So there is a place for gentle dialogue. There's a place for robust disagreement. I think there's, a, there's also a place for satire sometimes, which I've done and got a lot of people very angry, but again, did a, a long article in, in which, and it does, but actually it's supposed to, isn't it? Um, and it's biblical as well. Um, you know, God does it to Job. So if anybody says satire is unbiblical or satire should never be used by the powerful, well, God is pretty powerful and he does it. So actually in the end, I don't think, I've got to be wise, but I did a long post basically saying, here's why evangelical Christians can worship idols. 
and just said, I've always been an idolater, I was born that way, and hey, listen, and Jesus never spoke about it, isn't that great? And it's really inclusive, let's just allow people to worship as many idols as they want. Romans 1 is all about something else. I just, it was a, a very line-for-line satire of the view. And again, people come back and say, but how did you speak with that voice there and speaking with this voice much more gently here? And which would be a different voice again from the one that I used for the gay couple in the church who were saying we'd like to get married. And they're both, one of them has just been baptised, which is an issue. The other one is going to be baptised that weekend, or was due to be, and then this whole thing comes up. And me and one of my fellow elders are sitting in their sitting room going, right, we need to talk about this. The voice I used there, praise God, God just broke in halfway through the conversation. The stronger of the two guys, just, I can see our future without being married. I can just see friendship. Amazing work of God in that. But the voice you used there is completely different again. Telling my own story which is not the same as most gay people today. But even so, I say, I know what it's like. I lived five years in a boys' boarding school, really being attracted to guys. And, not, and I, so I know kind of what that's like in the sense of confusion and shame and mystery and so on that's tied up with that. So I know you're just using lots of different voices. And obviously you've got part, sometimes just pastoral confrontation as well. So this is actually not just a tell me why you got there, but this is a you cannot do that. That would be sinning against God. You must not do that. If you do that, you cannot keep coming here or whatever. So I think sometimes to say, well, we've got to speak with one voice. So I find the, the perfect tone that communicates to Rob Bell and Steve Chalk and Brian McLaren and all of the Twitterati you know, kind of crazy people and all of the gay people who'll ever turn up and all the people in our church. I don't think there is any such voice. I think contextualization requires not doing that. And I think if you read Paul, you think he doesn't speak with one voice. His tone in Galatians and his tone in Philippians, you think, I'm surprised this is even the same guy. A lot of people think it isn't. But you know, you read Paul's letters and people say, you can't talk like that and like that. It's like, well, pastors do, you have to. So I would just throw that out there for particularly because I think behind several of the questions, that's part of the issue. Is is there a way of doing this that I get all tick all of those boxes? And I think in a way there isn't. But it is nevertheless essential if we're going to speak out on it publicly to the church that we find a way of doing as best we can at getting all six of those things, right? We've got to find a way of communicating that. And so I thought what I'd try and do, in, um, I'd just summarise the way I came at this a bit as I, when I spoke on this more recently. Um, but I think one thing, which again Matt has banged on about for years, which I find really helpful with this, is just the positive vision of marriage and the positive vision of singleness together. And doing that, you often don't even need to talk about the sin at all. So one of the ways of, I mean, this is, I did this message at New Day last year, but found, which is the big youth event we have here, um, found it so helpful, the, the very enactment of a wedding, that what a wedding actually is and how it works is just such a powerful way of communicating without even needing to say the word gay or sexuality or anything. You, you expound a wedding as it's happening and you communicate, do you see why this shows the gospel? And isn't it obvious, therefore, that there's something going on here that can't be reduced to two people who are the same? So we did a... a I've done it before with a big... In fact, let's, let's, let's... Can I just briefly borrow PJ and Ash? Is that okay? Can you just do a quick... Go to the back of the room and just do... We'll, we'll do this lightning quick, okay? So Ash, go to the back, obviously. PJ, stand here. Um, so so the, the gospel is... Yeah, but you can be my best man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm sorry to say, the best man, best man doesn't form such a large part of this story as you might be hoping, Donnie. I don't know. <laughs> and he is in there, to be fair. Yeah, he's got the rings. Wow, man. Yeah. Okay. So, but the gospel is, 
bearded bridesmaids. That is wrong. That is wrong. The gospel is that. The gospel is that. Sit down and be quiet, you monkey. Um, the gospel is that Jesus is, Jesus is ready for us to come and approach him. He's here at the beginning. He is, he's, already, he's already there. He's just done everything that's needed for his bride to be presented to him pure and spotless. And he is now just waiting. He's here at the start of the meeting. And then she walks in and everybody stands and looks at her. Everybody stands and looks at her and says, wow, doesn't she look gorgeous and spotless? Because there's a... a uh, there's, a, there's a beauty and a delight and a spotlessness and that's what Jesus has done for you and you know this right but you look at the same these, these, look, they look completely different if he was dressed up as her that would not work if she was dressed up as him it wouldn't work in fact these uniforms are designed to exaggerate the differences between them so in fact there's a lot of men and women in this, in this room who are wearing clothes that are actually almost interchangeable with each other and that's fine that's the way our culture is but not on a wedding day and as a result, they just look at them. This is a complementarity. Anyway, so he goes and stands next to her, and then they, they make promises to each other. He speaks first, and he initiates this. So he says, this is what I promised to you. And then she says, this is what I promised to you. And, and, then, and you guys are all sitting down now and just watching and observing. And you're standing there wondering why you're here. You can... It, it, I did warn you, man. I did. And, and so there's a place... But, there, but actually, even then... Biblically, there is. There's, this is kind of like John the Baptist, actually. That's how he describes himself. So I'm, I'm, st- I'm stepping back. I'm John the Baptist, as in representing the entire ministry of the Old Testament, which was designed to lead, wait, lead you to the day when you meet her. And at that point, I back off and fade into the background. Anyway, so you then make your promises, and then you commit to forsake all others as long as you both shall live. And this is where you touch on the permanence of marriage. And so this forsaking. So you come in and try and get to Ash. She's gonna, it's not just that he's going to have a problem. She's going to forsake you. She's like, get out of my face, because that's not what we do. Because Christ has made an everlasting covenant with us. We've committed to him. And it's not just that it stops with the promises, because that's, if you like, justification. That's what we promise to follow you. You promise to make a legal verdict over us. You go over there now and you go and sign something and that becomes written in stone. And that's now a legal fact. But it's not just that. You also exchange... Rigby, have you got the... You also exchange physical symbols of your love and affection for each other. You give, you give gifts. And so you put a gift on her as if to say, this is a symbol of my love and affection for you. And she says, this is a symbol of mine for you. His gift to her, you would say, what is the, what is the, what is the seal of this covenant? It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he actually, the difference here is that she doesn't give him an equivalent. This is a one-sided covenant in that sense. He says, I initiate and give you a gift you don't actually have anything to give back in a way, but that's okay, I love you anyway. So anyway, she takes the, the seal and lives with it on her hand every day and says, the gift of the Spirit indicates to me I'm loved by this guy. And he assures me of that. And then, of course, the, they go out, process with a new identity. So as they go back down, she's now, what, what, were your, what was your name before? Clock. Clock. She's no, long, no longer Clock. She has died to her old identity. She's been given a new name, which again, and she's now been given, a, she's now a smite. She's like, I take on his identity. I am a member of Christ and I share his anointing. I'm now part of his family and I've been incorporated in. That's one-sided as well, notice, of course. He doesn't take her name. It's not like a swap. It's like, no, she takes on his new identity because she's playing the part of the church. And they process out and there's a massive meal and celebration. Yeah. And, 
And even then, even then it hasn't yet stopped because a celebratory meal involving food and wine is at the heart of the way that the church then responds to the covenant God's made with us. And we take food and wine as a celebration of what God's done for us. And every time we do it, it's like, hey, as Jesus said on the beach, come and have breakfast because that's what the wedding breakfast is. And then, of course, at the end of the day, they go and consummate the marriage physically, which is also a picture of the gospel because Jesus does that for us as we, or we do it with him and become physically united with him in baptism. And so for those people also who say, by the by, oh, well, baptism's just a symbol. And you say, well, sex isn't really just a symbol of marriage. And then somebody says, right, but then how then do you possibly deal with the idea that some people haven't been baptized even though they're believers? I'd say, well, in the same way as I deal with a couple who got married and hadn't had sex yet. I'd say, there's the embodied aspect of this has gone missing. I don't know why, but we need to fix it now. doesn't mean you're not legally married, but it does mean that we're not kind of fully married in the way that we normally do marriage, so let's sort that out. And then, of course, they walk out covenant promises, exchange all their possessions, and live happily ever after. And so that kind of thing, I don't have to mention sexuality, but you can see how you do that in half an hour or whatever. And you're line at a time, just reinforcing a complementary, and this, by the way, is by the by of male and female roles. This is just, this is what a marriage is. Tom Cranmer was a genius. And you, you walk through the wedding liturgy or variant of it that most of us, I expect, use. And in doing it, you're able to say, look, this is, I, don't have to, I don't have to teach you at all. I just look at this act and look what it's telling us about male and female. So I think that's a very powerful way of doing it. Um, and obviously, we do that when we have weddings in the church. We don't, so it's not about sexuality at all. In fact, many people don't even notice that we're saying it, which in some ways, the, that's what parables do. Isn't it? They get in under your defences, and then suddenly, hang on a second, a few days later, they, that whole thing was, I got, I've been tricked. They were trying to communicate something about sexuality that I didn't notice, because the parable, as Piper calls it, doesn't he, marriage, a parable of permanence. It's just, it gets in under your skin, and you go, oh, I didn't notice that's what it was doing. So I think there's a, a lot to be done just for the positive vision of marriage, and then, of course, you've got the positive vision of singleness and celibacy, and this really is where we go after sex as idolatry. Um, and so, my talk, which I, I've done a number of times on this, <laughs> I will, many of you will know Joel Virgo. In fact, one of you might be related to him, I think. Um, and uh, he, he's a bit of a rapscallion because he said to me, I'd like you to come and speak in a series we're doing um, on, his, you know, it's apologetics, big issues. Why does God care who I, who I sleep with? So I went, that's fine. And by the time I got to CCK, the title had become, Why Does God Care What I Do With My Genitals? I was like, well, that's the same, but not quite the same. That's a very different nuance to really to what that is. And, um, and so, I'd, so the, way I do, and the way I do that talk, um, we did a survey in our town. What are the biggest objections to Christianity? What was, you can tell. What was the number one issue? It wasn't this. What was the number one issue? Suffering. Number two issue, sexuality. And that's changed in the last 10 years, which is helpful anyway for us. Why is it such a big issue now? So I listed lots and lots of the comments people made. So I, in other words, I'm hearing you. I can tell. So... Um, why is the church so against same-sex relationships? People can't help how they're born. Why is same-sex activity sinful? God made people to be attracted to their own sex. All of that kind of thing. So just throw out lots of the things people say. So th- and that might be your objection today. And then so now, that list tells me two different things are going on. One, people have been hurt by the church. Two, people might have a problem with what God actually says. If you've been hurt by the church, I'm so sorry. Here's why. If you get the issue about what God actually says, well, that's what we're going to look at because it's a good question. Why does God care what I do with my genitals? Great question, because he does. And here's why he does. Um, but whoever you're sleeping with today or whoever you're not sleeping with today, God loves you, and so do I. But the question still stands, why does God care? 
And he does. Look, Genesis, Revelation, he does. I get that. So I understand why it's a question. So I'm trying to validate the fact that people are asking it, but in the same way teaching them that it's true at, at the same time. So my, my answer is in three steps. Why does God care who I sleep with? Well, the, the question's a good one, but everyone cares who people sleep with. So why would God be any different? Right? You and I care who people sleep with? Nobody, you would never, this is where I tackle the issue Lex was raising, which is admittedly easier to do in public than one-to-one. But if I said that it was just who I am that I wanted to sleep with my sister, or that it was just who I am that I wanted to sleep with a 13-year-old girl, or with someone else's wife, or with three other people's wives at the same time, or with a 13-year-old boy, or many other variables, you would all say, that's just, that's not okay. So you, you care too, all right? We might differ on what we say about it, but we all care who people sleep with. Why would God be different? And actually, there's evidence in at least British culture, I don't know how much this translates, that people are more concerned about immorality, as in cheating on people, than they were 20 years ago. If you contrast friends and modern family, you'd just be stunned. Modern family go, oh, look, there's a gay couple. But friends are like, yeah, there wasn't, there was a gay, they were minor characters, but the main characters were just sleeping around all the time. That's not held up on display in the same way now. And people are more, most people think it's wrong to cheat. So there's a lot of restrictions we place. So why couldn't God be like that? So that's step one. Then you come back and say, yeah, but the, in that case, my problem isn't that you have constraints on sexual expression. My problem is that God's constraints on sexual expression are so different from ours, at least as you're telling me. And at that point, you do the Keller thing, where you say, well, if, if God is timeless and his ethic is the same, you would expect it to conflict with every culture on something. Every culture is changing all the time. You believe something different from what you personally believed 10 years ago. What Barack Obama said when he ran for president in 2008 would now be condemned as bigoted by the entire Western media, and that was eight years ago. So you have changed. You're dramatically different from what you believed 50 years ago, or anyone like you did, and probably very different from what you will believe in 50 years, and is also very different from what 6 billion of the world's 7 billion people probably believe. So it would be very arrogant, wouldn't it, for you to stand there and say, well, God has to, on this issue right now, has to align with me and not with everyone else, which is a classic kind of Keller apologetics judo thing using their weight against you isn't it just because you're then saying that's not the way in which you you judge god on this one god's just not changed vast majority of humans alive ever have agreed with him on this you don't now and who knows you may agree with him again in a hundred years but you don't at the moment but i don't think that's a basis for making a moral judgment of god it's just to say we differ and then i come to the idolatry of sex thing which is the celibacy angle of singleness angle and saying okay so everyone cares who people sleep with why can't God? And why God's standard, would you'd expect to differ from ours somewhere, wouldn't you? The third step is, why do we care so much about who we sleep with? You say, in my town, there are people who, because their religious faith tells them to, are happy to renounce various foods, or money, or alcohol, or personal hygiene, or their foreskins, or a great many other things. They say, this is just one of those things that gets literally chopped off because I want to follow my God. And you're fine with that, and if you pass them in the town centre, you'd say, well, that's just what it means to be a vegan or to be a Muslim or to be a Jew. You can't be a vegan and eat meat. You can't be a Jew and retain your foreskin if you're a guy. That's just not the way it works. And yet if someone says you have to give up the right to have sex with whoever you want, suddenly, whoa. And my question would be, why is that? Why is that the one thing? Money? Okay. Career even? Okay. Sex? No. Why is that the case? Even if those limits on sex reflect the Christian message and human flourishing and have been accepted by most people in most nations for most of time, you're still not prepared to give it up 
And I don't know for sure, but I suspect that it's because sex is the highest good for many in our culture, and it is inconceivable someone could flourish without it. And that is a lie, and here's why. Sex has become a god. If you're not having sex, you can't sit at the cool kids' table, but you can lead an incredibly rich, flourishing life as a single person. And, of course, we know that rather more than almost any other world religion founded because Jesus was single. And Jesus demonstrated in that a single-minded zeal. For the, In fact, you may not know this if you're new to the Bible, but in the only letter that explicitly addresses singleness in the New Testament, Paul specifically said that to be married was good, but to be single was even better. And he was single, so he should know. But in our culture, not having sex is portrayed as a curse. When did you last see a movie that the lead character and the heroic person you're supposed to look at never had sex with anybody? Virgins are a source of mockery in the culture, and the Christians have the highest possible esteem for single people because Jesus was single. And that culture makes us look like constraining sex is inhumane, whereas actually what it's doing is saying, Jesus is worth giving up everything for, and if you're not prepared to give up everything, let alone sex, you can't become a Christian in the first place. Because at the heart of the Christian message is selling everything to get the pearl of great price, and I quite often do a big visual illustration with this where I get, um, I've got my, it's my favourite, one of my favourite visuals actually because it's really theatrical. So I have a crystal decanter that I was given for my wedding by a guy who's a, uh, now a professor in, in Canada. And uh, I get one guy standing on one side of the stage with a huge pile of bricks uh, or b- wooden blocks usually because they're lighter. Um, and then another guy standing over here, well I often do it, with a crystal decanter and I'll effectively talk about the fact that this is a free gift but in order to take hold of it he's got to drop everything else. And say so the kingdom of God is free, I'm giving it to you but it costs you everything to get it. Because if you don't drop it, you'll, it'll smash. And I'll stand as far away as I think I can viably do and yet still have them catch it and do a one, two, three thing and then throw it across the stage. They catch it, everyone claps. But as you do it, you say, you have to look at it. That is everything you prize all over the floor. Look, money, career, sex, power, everything you wanted is gone because in order to take hold of Jesus, you had to. So in a way, that, and that's the way I tend to try and do it. So in presenting both, the sort of marriage, the high view of marriage and the high view of singleness together. I'm trying to say that's ultimately what's going on under the surface. And the challenge, of course, is that if we think about them on a spectrum, like a seesaw, the higher view of marriage, the meaner you are about single people. The higher view of single, you won't address marriage. I think there's still, by the way, plenty of work for us to do as a church in actually living out communities such that single people feel like what we say is actually true. And by the yes is here, there's many, maybe many of whom are far better at doing that than I am. Pastorally, that's a huge challenge that remains and probably always will because so many leaders are married. But at a theological level, I don't actually think it's particularly challenging. Um, so what do we do when the person says, hey, you're not going to accept me for who I am? I mean, I just, I, here's a couple of things I've done in those sorts of situations. Um, but, but, so tell me, tell me what you mean by who you are. What, do you, what, does it, what does it mean for you for this to be your identity? What is, talk to me about that. Try and, it, I'm get, trying to get people to begin to say, actually, this particular behavior is part of my identity to the point that it could, I could not be this person without it. So do you think ever, so have you ever met anybody whose sexual preference has changed? Or do you, do you think that you would no longer be you if that happened? And so on. So just, but in a very gentle, to me, I'm, this is a very gentle sort of thing. Like, to be honest, I'm going to leave open the question of, what I would, I, I certainly don't think that your preference means that you can't become a believer at all. And I, I know, and of course, I, in my case, I can do that. So I've had it. Um, and I've got loads of friends who do, loads of people who are, have never felt a moment's attraction to someone of the opposite sex who are in the church. So that's not, that's not a deal breaker. So now, let, now talk to me, what do you mean by identity? And so on. I had one really good one where 
couple of teenage girls, they were quite bright teenagers, were in the, in the welcome area. I said, what do you make of the meeting today? They're chatting away. And then she says, I just the thing is, I don't understand how you, how you could possibly say that two people who love each other can't get married. And I just felt the, the Holy Spirit gave me a great answer. I was like, why two? Why not three? And they were like, are you serious? And you could see on their face it was just a picture because obviously teenage girls don't expect pastors to say that. Are you saying we should have threesomes in, enshrined in law? It was like kind of what they were doing. But I was like, no, what? Are you? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm just wondering what, why, why you don't think three or nine? Or where does that number come from? Where's two? And again, as people start going, oh, actually, I've got... And you could see it was quite sweet because they were kind of going, oh, I, I, I don't really know. And because the foundation for some of the cultural assumptions they had had not been push back on so I think there's a few kind of now you don't do that just to you know, that's cheating in some ways because I'm 35 and they're 16 and I've read a lot and they're just swallowing the culture but even so I think there's there's sometimes some just behind the enemy lines apologetic things like that that can help but my fallback actually is that what happened to Lex is going to happen to all of us loads of times people are going to hear what you believe and no matter how winsome you express it they're going to go and they're not going to come back I just I take comfort in the fact that, and I don't want to overuse this example, but when Jesus met a guy who really cared about his possessions more than Jesus, Jesus said, here's your choice. And the guy went, okay. And I think that will happen. If we're teaching faithfully, that's bound to happen, not just on this issue, but on every issue. And if, we're, if there's a sensitivity to us as elders, leaders, deacons, whatever, and, and we're not ready for that, we will continually tweak and adapt until people say yes. But ultimately, if we're preaching the gospel properly, people should be doing that not just about sexuality. They should be doing it about money. They should be doing it about everything. And by the grace of God, they will. So.